We're continuing in our um, series here in the Sermon on the Mount. And each week we have found ourselves in a beatitude. And we've just been doing what may be painstaking for some of you, but is so delightful for others, um, is just doing this slow roll through the beatitudes. And so we come to the last uh, whether you count eight or nine, we're covering Matthew 5, 10 through 12. And if you would, read this aloud with me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you insult, when people <laughs> insult you, <laughs> persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So if, if you were tasked with providing one word to describe uh, the emerging Jesus movement. Think a, a couple of generations after the resurrection. You, your, your task is one word to describe the emerging Jesus movement. What would that one word be? And this is, this is rhetorical. You don't have to say it aloud right now. Would it, would it be something like, courageous or humble, or maybe you're thinking this is a trick question because we're talking about persecution, so you're like, persecuted, that's the answer. What would it be, maybe risky? So there's, there's a historian named Gerald Sitzer who, who offers us a word for this emerging Jesus movement, and the word he offers is the word martyr. It's kind of a curious word that he puts forward. He has, has this uh, book called um, Water from the Deep Water. I forget the name of the book, whatever. Um, but in it, he, he offers a word for kind of each movement in church history. And, and to begin, he gives us this word, martyr. And he makes this, this case that, this, that the emerging Jesus movement is shaped by this word. And he has this to say. He says, discipleship to Jesus implies suffering leads to persecution, tests metal, demands steadfastness, requires endurance, and even leads to death. It demands we confess Jesus as Lord. So let me just ask, does that sound like your discipleship to Jesus? There's no shame in that question. I'm just, in, in all sincerity, when you think of your discipleship to Jesus, or maybe that word is annoying to you, so you think about your life with Jesus or your apprenticeship to Jesus, does it imply suffering or persecution or test the core of your inner woman or inner man? Does it demand something of you? Steadfastness? See, this is when Sitzer thinks about the emergence of the Jesus movement. This is the framework that he has in mind. And this is actually what we're going to move through as we track with Jesus through this last beatitude. And if you're a little rusty on the Jesus movement and you're like, I actually, I don't remember. I've read Acts, but that was in like eighth grade. So here's a little refresher. Um, when G the Jesus movement starts with Jesus. Are we good? Okay, so it continues. So how does it start though? Jesus picks up this message of the gospel or the good news of the kingdom of God. He picks that message up from John the baptizer and he takes this message. You might remember this in Matthew chapter four, right before the Sermon on the Mount, as he says this, repent. 
which is all of our, our favorite word. I'm sure the next tattoo you're going to get is just simply going to say repent. Uh, but repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And this message, it goes forth. In other words, if you have ears to hear, change your mind about the way that you think God is at work in the world. This is the invitation of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't simply announce this as though he's like a pundit on a news channel. Jesus begins to embody this announcement. He starts to display what this kingdom looks like and what it looks like to step into this type of space. And it's amazing because his life begins to displace animosity, even though it also slowly starts to rise around him. And it, it cultivates life and honor and hospitality and generosity. And this is what then Jesus says is life in the kingdom. We've spent the past two months talking about and, and around what life is already like in the kingdom. It's for those who are merciful, for those who make peace. This is, these are the type of people who inhabit this space. And Jesus, interestingly, is the one who points all the way to these things. And so as Jesus went around doing this, like gospeling the good news, tensions rose around him. And, and what's curious is that when Jesus came and embodied the good news of God's kingdom, it actually was an indictment to the religious people of the day. Isn't it? It's curious how when we follow Jesus with integrity, it can actually stand as an indictment to others, which is just a weird thing. And it's not like you're trying to be a jerk, but there's a contrasting movement to Jesus in the world. And so this is what Jesus does. He moves in the world with this contrasting reality. And the religious leaders, they're so offended and, and charged by Jesus that they set their ire against him. It's essentially that Jesus stands in opposition to their movement in the world. And so they plot his capture, his arrest. They have this ridiculous mock trial. They hand him over to death. And this is how Jesus goes. This is the start of the Jesus movement, is he's handed over as an enemy of the state. He's killed with essentially no one around him. The only people who remain are the women disciples, the, the women who've like functionally bankrolled Jesus's ministry. They are the ones who then, to honor Jesus after his death, go to find him there. And what do they find? In the place where they expect death, what do they find? This is not rhetorical this time. Yeah, but there's no one, the tomb is empty. This is actually what we're anticipating in the Lenten season is movement toward an empty tomb. This is what, they, they find nothing, which is actually everything. Jesus isn't there. And so what we see in the Jesus movement is that it broke out from a tomb. This is just how God is interested in working in the world of suffering and persecution and endurance, even to death. And that is what happens then when those who've committed themselves to follow Jesus stay with it. Is that what you see is when the Spirit falls in Acts 2, this community is embraced by the Spirit and it compels them into those same places of challenge where they're required to endure even in the face of death. That this obscure Jewish sect with Jesus literally living in them by the power of the Spirit sets the Mediterranean world ablaze. This is, this is actually our heritage. This is our history. If you follow Jesus, this is your story. And yet when these 
communities were encountering suffering and they needed to endure. They were met with words of encouragement because Jesus doesn't just leave us alone. He actually offers us present encouragement through the Spirit and through one another. And so one of the most vibrant forms of one anothering were the letters. It's actually the, the book that we have. <laughs> we call it the New Testament, but I imagine for them it was just like, yeah, Peter wrote us a letter and then it began to circulate. This is, these are the type of words that they received. This is, this is the type of encouragement they needed in, in the midst of their discipleship. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Notice the assumption. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, pay attention to that. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. If you're well, if you're well acquainted with the Jesus story, do, do you think Peter knows a thing or two about association with Jesus and specifically shameful association? Yeah, on the night of Jesus' arrest, Jesus is taken away and Peter who had said moments before, if everyone leaves you, even if I have to die, I will never leave you. And Jesus goes away alone. Peter follows in the shadows and he comes and when Jesus is in a court and he is held in bondage, Peter's warming himself by a fire. And this teenage girl comes up to Jesus and, and she looks at him and says, you're, you're with him, aren't you? And Peter does what? He denies it. But then they ha they've heard him speak, and so, so they say, well, no, 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 no. You have the accent. You're a Galilean. Surely you're one of them. And then Jesus says, er, he says, no, he denies Jesus again. And then he goes so far as to say, I never knew this man. Do you think Peter knows a thing or two about shameful association with Jesus? It's at that moment that he hears the cock crow, and he remembers his Lord's words that you will deny me three times before you hear the rooster crow. And all Peter can do is go out and weep. And so with that wisdom in hand, he turns to this community with words of encouragement. And you might say, like, how could Peter do that? Because Jesus never abandoned Peter. Do you remember post-resurrection? The tomb is empty. Jesus rolls up onto a shore and Peter sees him. He like bails from the ship. He just has his like undies on and he's going, he's swimming to shore and, and there they are. And Jesus says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love? And it's like this affirmation of love. Jesus then commissions Peter to participate with him in the ministry of reconciliation and love. See, this is, this is how the Jesus movement launched off is through suffering and persecution and endurance because Jesus is with these people. And this is what Peter then offers these communities is that Jesus will not leave you. He actually invites us into his ministry of love because discipleship to Jesus is about bearing the name. And tradition actually has it that Peter would later go on to face death in the same manner as Jesus uh, crucifixion on a cross, but he wouldn't want to have the honor of being crucified like Jesus, so he asks to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to, to suffer in a way that would remind people of Jesus that explicitly, so instead he, he asks for it to be even more extreme. And I don't think this is like Peter playing the martyr. 
Instead, I think that this is just his heart has been shaped by Jesus' blessing. Remember, these are Jesus' words in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Remember, this carries this idea of, of justice, of right justice, of even social justice. So blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So according to Jesus, if you're with him, it's not a matter of if you will encounter this resistance. It is, it's a matter of when that association with Jesus will yield this type of resistance. And perhaps this sounds as odd to you as it does to me. And our location, I think, um, says a lot. I've, I don't think I've ever encountered physical persecution because of Jesus. I had one awkward interaction in a bar that I remember. I had like started following Jesus in college and I was like, I don't know, maybe you had this response, like anything that is like morally abhorrent in your mind at that time, you leave it and you go to the other extreme because we're really good at swinging on the pendulum. So I'm like totally up here. I'm like essentially a monk, but not really. Uh, and so then I go back and my friends invite me to the bar and I'm sitting there and I had, I was just, I was just, hanging out in a booth and one of my one of my friends he walks up and he and people in college called me mac and so they said he walks up and he goes oh is, is mac he's so soft did he leave already like that's that's the amount of persecution i've encountered if that's even persecution and and so so i think this sounds odd when jesus says it's not a matter of if but when and so and, and you'd be forgiven for thinking that life in the kingdom would would be desirable I mean, people of mercy and love and peacemaking, like wouldn't the world want all of these peoples? <laughs> it, 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 you would be forgiven for thinking that that would lead, like, lead to the affection of the world, but do you notice that it is when the church is holding her hands to the wounds of the world that the world bites back? This isn't to vilify the world, it's just to name that it is here. It's in this righteousness motivated by Jesus. Righteousness motivated by Jesus, that movement toward others, that is when Jesus locates the resistance. He, he assumes that it'll come in this ministry of love. And what, what's curious is that we love, we love to play this up. And maybe not we as in this community, but, but those who we get to call brothers and sisters will name persecution when they meet verbal resistance. And there is some of that that is legitimate, but I would have to say that there's also some of it that's illegitimate. I, I, this is kind of low-hanging fruit, but I think it proves the point. There's moments where there will be soldiers who've died in battle, and r regardless of your thoughts on armed conflict, they will be there like remembering, honoring the memory of this person. And there will be people who come and hold signs in protest to these. That's not the spirit of Jesus. And yet these people who are holding signs and protests, they're saying that they're claiming God's authority, that they are the ones who truly stand with Jesus. That is not the spirit of Jesus. And so when they meet resistance because of their lack of kindness, that's human resistance. That is simply human resistance to lack of kindness, to a lack of empathy. That is not genuine resistance, which is what Jesus is talking about. Instead, the resistance Jesus talks about it's not that. It's not the resistance we may feel from a relative or a coworker who's like not down with Jesus, but they don't just tolerate you, they love you because we live in a pluralistic state. Like this is, there's a beautiful space where we can hold one another together in love and we can move toward people and actually hold different opinions and 
and learn from one another. What a gift that is. So it's not just even that resistance. Instead, persecution carries this idea of someone laying hands on you. This idea of, of, it's used in Luke, of of imprisonment, even to the point of death. See, this is raw and it's real, that when this type of resistance is cited here, Jesus has in mind something intense. And as the church settles into the margins of the Roman Empire, a generation or so after Jesus, the violence against the emerging church turns up something fierce, and that's why Sister kind of gives that word martyr forward, a word to kind of guide our thought about this community. And soon enough, the Roman officials began rounding up Christians. Some try and think, oh, is it after Rome burned in 64 AD and Nero kind of blames Christians and so they get lumped in. There's just guesses around this. Uh, But nevertheless, what you see is that prominent leaders in the church would get rounded up. And one of these leaders is named Polycarp. Anybody by show of hands who... Are you like, oh yeah, I love Polycarp. Yes. Um, I was talking with some friends this past week and they were, she was like, oh gosh, like is Polycarp the guy who got burned but wouldn't, wouldn't die? And so that's the guy. This is the one, if that's who you're thinking. Yes, it's him. So Polycarp, he's the bishop of Smyrna, you know, in modern day Turkey. And he was a man, and check this out. He's a man called by Roman officials, the destroyer of the gods. Yes. Yes, Ben, that is an excellent name for a band, in case you're interested in a, the destroyer of our God. So, uh, so Polycarp is hunted down. He's taken before the proconsul, and then he is pressured to sacrifice like a pinch of, of incense on the altar to give his allegiance to Rome and the emperor. And essentially, there's these documents that have been found by archaeologists that, that once the empire had your primary allegiance, they didn't care what you did with your lesser loves. So you just offer this little thing, you make a signature, you hold it, and it basically gives you license to do whatever you want in the world. It'd be comparable to like, I don't know, a vaccination card in some spaces in the world. Like, you have this, go and move freely. Uh, but that, that was almost political there. Well, interesting. So, so Polycarp, he, he resists this. And so then the, the proconsul is pressing him even further. And then he says this, listen to Polycarp's words. For 86 years, I have been his servant and he has never done me wrong. How could I blaspheme my king who saved me? This is not a man who's aligned with a political party. He's he's not trying to uphold some sort of doctrinal standard. This is a man who has a fierce fidelity to Jesus. Notice the personal language to his statement. I have been his servant. He has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king? The, the interpersonal dynamic between Polycarp and Jesus, it's real. It's as though he's sat in the love, the abiding love of Jesus and will not turn away from that. And what's so beautiful is that he's even pressed further by the proconsul. He's, he essentially threatens wild beasts and Polycarp says, bring it. He says, okay, but wild beasts aren't good enough? Well, then I'll light you on fire. And check out what he says to this. This is epic. He says, the fire you threaten burns for a time and is soon extinguished. There is a fire you know nothing about, the fire of the judgment to come. But why do you hesitate? Do what you want. The suffering, the persecution, the endurance, this is discipleship to Jesus. This is what is to claim Jesus is Lord. So the proconsul did do what he wanted. He killed Polycarp. 
But what's so interesting is that rather than quieting the Christians or silencing the Christians, these, these moments became like these moments of, of intense curiosity for those who would see it. See, what would happen is these prominent leaders would be brought into spaces, coliseums. They would sometimes be robed in animal skins and attacked by wild animals. But what, what people would see is the honor with which they died. I mean, it's just, there's these displays that would just be remarkable, and yet they would be held in the love of Jesus in those moments, singing hymns to God as they're being put to death. This is the resistance Jesus is talking about. And what's so interesting to me is they don't fight back. They don't marshal some sort of defense that's going to tear down the Roman officials. No, they receive the violence into their bodies so that it can go no further. This is the type of movement that the Jesus movement takes up. And I love how this is articulated. See, Tertullian, who's a Christian writer from North Africa, he, kinda, he, has, he captures this famously when he says, we Christians are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you cannot just exterminate us. The more you kill us, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So you may have heard that last line before, the blood of the martyrs is a seed of the church, but notice that he first starts off saying that we're not just a new philosophy, not just another thing to be thrown into the mix, but that God is actually revealing God's character through the church. And so because the Jesus movement started in a tomb and life came forth from there, death doesn't have the final word. Later in Tertullian's life, he's actually asked for wisdom about living in this type of context. And someone essentially comes to Tertullian and says, how can I follow Jesus? How can I follow the way and live in this place? I have to provide for my family. How can I live? And his response is this, must you live? That's the pastoral word. Must you live? This is discipleship to Jesus, and that is why martyr is the word. There was this fierce fidelity to Jesus, must you live? See, what's so interesting about that word, martyr, is it's actually where we get our word witness. So martus in the Greek is where we eventually then get our English word witness. And, and the witness that was told forth by the emerging Jesus movement was one where they did not count their life as their own, but they were willing to give it up over to death because that is who their Lord was. That's, that's how fierce Jesus's love was and is for them. And so they countered their death as nothing. This is, does this sound strange to any of you? How, how are we doing with this? Uh, it's just a, just a nice Sunday talking about persecution. Okay, this is great. So uh, this is actually the hope that we get to sit in, that, that, that there is a strange, this peculiar song of joy amid suffering can come out from a community of faith. And this hope, this joy, it's not derived from doctrinal purity or intellectual superiority, but it, it comes from the abiding presence of Jesus. Jesus says it is for righteousness, and then he also says, because of me, you will encounter these realities. This past week, I, I watched this, this interview that was about two Iranian women who were um, held in prison, in Evan prison in Iran. And the, 
it was a remarkable interview. Just, and what it brought to the fore of my mind is that this is not just a word for the history books. Like this hope doesn't have to be something in the past or it's something we look back to with fondness and fear, but it's something that is actually present, a reality in the life of the church today. And these two women, you can go on and, and just, I don't know, Google two Iranian women, Evan Prison, E-V-I-N, and you'll see this interview that comes forward and they, they were eventually asked, how did you endure nine months in a prison that is notorious for uh, torture and rape and intense like interrogation tactics? And this is, this is what they said. We tasted the love of Jesus. What we endured those nine months was nothing compared to the love demonstrated on the cross. We are honored to have suffered. We are honored to have suffered for our faith. Though persecution comes, there is a place for joy. They tell this, as they're telling their story, they say, at first we were praying that God would take us from there, but then what we realized is that we're actually in the church. That there they were in the midst of a place that looked like death, but there was life there. One of their interrogators comes up and, and says, why are you sharing your faith? He's angry with them about talking about Jesus. And, and they go, it's your fault. You're the one who imprisoned us. And people ask us why we're here. And so we tell them about the love of Jesus. And I, I don't know how, what kind of thought comes to your mind when you think about witnessing. I have a very distinct and narrow view of what that is. And these women obliterated that. Because what they're displaying is that in their bodies, they're displaying the goodness of a kingdom that is not just here, it is coming here, and they're displaying that goodness in this moment. See, to bear the name, as, as Peter says, is to embody the way of Jesus. And I love how New Testament scholar Scott McKnight kind of wraps us back into this. He says this about our Beatitudes. He says, here at the end of the Beatitudes, the question arises as to where in this world such a faith community actually finds a place. And this is our place, church, at the cross. The faith community of the blessed is the community of the crucified. With him they lost everything, and with him they found everything. I said, to those who bear the name, to those who bear the name, who are, the, are those who take up justice in the name of Jesus, those are the ones who are also promised to, re, to rejoice, because great is the reward. And so I just want to invite you into this. You might be wondering, how do I actually participate in this type of reality? And maybe you're, okay, are you saying, do I just like, do I need to become a martyr? Is this the thing? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think it is a willful seeking of your death in the name of Jesus. I'm, I'm really compelled by Matthew 25, who talks about where Jesus actually is among the poor and those who need clothing and those who have not, that, the, that those who love and follow Jesus find themselves in those places, and that that actually is your martyr, your witness. So I think the more pressing question is, am I willing to display the kingdom of God in my body, like what I do with the whole of my life? And I 
I know, like, I have this weird thing of being, a, like, a, I don't know, a professional Christian. I get, this is my job. Like, I get to think about these things. But for most of you, you go into a place that isn't, like, marked by a liturgy or songs of worship. You go into a place that is neutral to positive to, I don't know, aggressive towards churchianity or Jesus. So what does it look like then to embody a witness of Jesus? And the one thing that came to the fore of my mind was settling your convictions in advance. And so what, what do I mean by settling your convictions in advance? Well, well, if you don't actually know what the kingdom is calling you to, how can you ever embody it? And then what does it mean then to, to actually hold a place, like a boundary? I mean, what, what, what would it look like? I have no idea because I've never done this, but I'm just curious, what would it look like if you went into like Meredith.dash or whatever it's called now, and you just, and you said to your manager, you said something like, this, this, in this space, I, I noticed this in, in, my, in my job description, from here to here, I, I will hustle. But, but right here, I've noticed there's some, there's some areas where this just, this, I would be living discordant with my values. Right here is where I just can't go any further. The, and, if, and if I'm asked to go further than this, I, I, I won't be able to do it. I imagine, I don't know what your boss would say. Maybe they'd say, oh, I'm glad that you've disclosed your principles and now we can move forward with clarity. Maybe they would say that. But mostly, I imagine that they would look at you with a weird face and ask why you had that meeting. But for you to establish a place to settle your convictions in advance would free you up to live, to, to bear witness to the name of Jesus. I'm not saying do this. I don't have any domain in that regard. I don't have authority there. But I, I do want to invite you to consider... What does it mean to settle those convictions? See, in, in the kind of flip side, the B sides to the Beatitudes in, in Luke, we read this corresponding woe. There's a blessing that comes to those who are persecuted, but we also get this woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. See, there is, there's an element to where we could just please the people around us and, and they would have no idea that we have allegiance to Jesus. See, there is a contrast that comes. I don't know where it would come. We live in a really privileged space, but if we're thinking, how do we step into this? How do we live into this? We maybe just want to remember Tertullian's words of, must we live? Like, what would happen if we woke up every morning and just say, must I live? For the next week, Monday to Saturday, we just receive the week as a gift. Every day, every moment as a gift, must I live according to the way that I think I should? Maybe these Beatitudes are inviting us to see that discipleship to Jesus has something else on offer. It has life that comes forth from death.